Amen. If you would go to Genesis chapter 39 in your Bibles, Genesis 39. Picking up where we left off last week, we'll be in Genesis 39, 20, and we'll make it through, hopefully, Genesis 41, verse 36. I'm talking about Joseph here in this, uh, this time period of his life where he is in, in prison. Well, if you're like me, if you are a college football fan, you know, thank you, I knew you would be, Alan, you know that there, has, there is a scandal currently that is rocking the college football world. It involves the team up north. And for those of us here in Ohio, it's kind of cool, actually. Not that they've cheated, potentially. But, you know, to think that, hey, they might actually uh, get what's coming to them, you know. If you're not up to date, they're stealing signs, potentially. It's still all the information's coming out. They're stealing signs in a way that they're not supposed to, pre-scouting games, recording sidelines, and then decoding them, and standing next to the coaches and telling them what the other team is going to do, so on and so forth, right? Of course, I would not jump to any conclusions immediately and not biased in any way whatsoever, but it appears, from what has come forward, it appears that certain coaches have traded their integrity for a couple wins. I'm saying they're still, they're still you know, guilty until proven innocent, right? There's still information to come forward. But so far, it looks like there is some integrity that has been brought into question that someone has been willing to give up integrity in order to gain some success. Remember last week as we talked about Joseph, chapter 39? Joseph faced a difficult test regarding his integrity, regarding Potiphar's wife. What was Joseph willing to give up in order to maintain his integrity? Now think about this. Think about Joseph's life so far. Joseph has been betrayed by his brothers. He's been left in a pit. He's been sold into slavery. He's been near death probably at least twice with, with his brothers who wanted to kill him. Potiphar probably should have killed him for what he was accused of. Now he's falsely accused. Now he's thrown into prison. A lot has gone wrong for Joseph. Considering all of that, the position that he had in Potiphar's house, where he had risen to basically administrator, overseer of his house, as things go for slaves, that was probably a pretty good gig. It was probably something that he was like, okay, this isn't the best thing in the world, but it's certainly not the worst. I can live with this. I can work with this. It's certainly not as bad as it could have been. Yet his integrity cost him his job. His integrity cost him whatever limited amount of freedom he had. And Joseph has been through it. Think of his life. With no, no fault of his own, his brothers turn on him and want to kill him and sell him into slavery. No fault of his own, he loses his job, he loses any freedom that he had, and he's thrown into prison. Even though he did what was right in God's sight. That's tough. That's challenging. When wrong is done to you because you have done right. 
And I ask you the question that must have been going through Joseph's question, what would you do to maintain your integrity? What would you be willing to lose? For Joseph, it was his job and whatever freedom or position he had. What would you be willing to lose to maintain your integrity? If it hasn't happened already, it probably will happen at some point in each one of our lives that we will be called to give up something in order to retain our integrity, to give up something that we have in order to retain what is certainly worth keeping. Remember Jim Elliott, the missionary to the Aka Indians? He said this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, for Joseph, his status in Potiphar's house what was definitely not something he would have traded for prison. Yeah, hey, you give me prison, I'll give you this. No. Yet he was willing to trade it for his integrity, to maintain his integrity. Think about it. If Joseph had given up right there, if he had fallen to Potiphar's wife's temptation, his story probably what? Probably ends at that point for us. Maybe. I mean, I know that's conjecture but it might have stopped right there. Yet God had even bigger things for Joseph than managing Potiphar's house. You know, he had, he had risen to the top spot there, but God says, I have even better things for you than managing Potiphar's house. God just has a unique way of getting Joseph to those things, doesn't he? Remember the dreams he had, and we're going to see more dreams today. Remember the dreams he had that eventually his brothers will bow down to him? We, in our minds, would think if, that, if something like that was revealed to us, we'd think, hey, it's a straight line from here to there. God's going to give it to me. Joseph had no idea that the line from that dream and what would happen, or from the dream to what would happen, would be a trajectory of ups and downs and ups and downs. Yet what? Don't doubt the downs. Because they are sometimes what gets us to the ups. And we see that here in Joseph's life. Look at verse 20, chapter 39. Joseph's master took him. This is after the false accusation from Potiphar's wife. Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. So he faced a big test against Potiphar's wife. He passes that test, though he loses all that he had. Now he comes and he faces his next big test. And you got to think, at some point along the line here, Joseph is going to say, I'm done with this. And is is this that point where Joseph packs it in and he he schedules himself a little pity party and says, I give up? Well, no. It's not. Joseph was not done with God, and God was not done with Joseph. Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph. Remember that phrase? We saw it in verse 2 in chapter 39. It was in verse 3 as well. Potiphar noticed that the Lord was with him. We see it here in verse 21. You see it in verse 23 again. The Lord was with Joseph. At Joseph's darkest times, he is not alone. And even in prison, Joseph receives the favor of God upon him. Look at these next few verses. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper 
in his hand. God causes the keeper of the prison to look on Joseph favorably. He gives, verse 22, he gives Joseph authority in the prison to look after the other prisoners. It sounds a lot like earlier in chapter 39, verses 4 and 6, when he does the same thing in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar says basically, hey, here's my household, look over it. Potiphar trusted Joseph. Here the keeper of the prison trusts Joseph. You know, there's something about Joseph. Wherever he goes, no matter what it is, Joseph rises to the top. Joseph is cream. He's the cream of the crop because what happens to the cream? It rises to the top. Why is this? Why, why does Joseph succeed in all that he does? Why does he rise above everyone else? You know, see, he's got it to Joseph in his perspective. We look at that and say, hey, he rises to the top every time. In his perspective, it's got to be, I can't catch a break. Yet, everywhere he goes, he's blessed and he's favored. Why? Well, I think there's two reasons. First, it's because he is an honorable man of integrity. Joseph is an honorable man of integrity. He's a hard worker. We've seen that throughout his story. He's wise. He's successful. He's organized. He's a leader. He has fortitude. He doesn't give in easily. He doesn't give up his integrity. In a world full of stones, Joseph was a diamond. His traits and his qualities had been forged in the crucible of difficulty and tragedy. He was tough as nails in a good way. But think about all those qualities and characteristics that Joseph had. They're good. They're great. That's what we would want to see in ourselves. It's what we would want to see in other people, right? And when we see those, we think those people are going to rise to the top. But... Does the possession of all of those traits and characteristics guarantee success? It does not. People with better qualities, stronger traits than Joseph, have failed miserably. I wouldn't say there's less to it than those traits, but there's more to prospering than those traits. There's another piece of the puzzle that must be accounted for here. Joseph is an honorable man of integrity, but that in and of itself does not get Joseph to where he is. Why? Because for Joseph and for us, we do not live self-determined lives. What do I mean? You are not the master of your fate, right? We do not live self-determined lives. We are ultimately in every way, at the mercy of God himself. We are ultimately at the mercy of God. Now, here's what works on our behalf. God is a God, according to scripture, who is abundant in mercy and loving kindness. So yes, we are at the mercy of God, yet God in his nature is abundant in mercy and his loving kindness knows no end. So Joseph was a man of integrity, yet he does not self-determine his life and existence, as is obvious. He does not prosper on his own account. There's something else at work. And what is that something else? It shows up three times in this passage. Verse 3, verse 21, and verse 23. You can be a man of integrity, please be that. 
You can have great skills, qualities, and traits. Please have those. Those are good. We should strive for those. But those things in and of themselves do not guarantee success. The second piece to the puzzle is that the Lord made him to prosper. Verse 3, we see it. The Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. Verse 21, we see it. He gave him favor. Verse 23, we see it. Whatever he did at the very end, the Lord made it prosper. The Lord, no matter who it is, no matter what the qualities are, the Lord is always involved in our prospering. Any success that we have is because of the merciful work of God on our behalf. It is never the result, the lone result of our own doing. It isn't. There are no lone ranger Christians. There are no self-made men in the kingdom of God. God is the one at work. God is the one in his merciful work on our behalf. He makes us to prosper. So you say, was it Joseph's hard work and character? Or was it the Lord's prospering that made Joseph who he was? What's the best answer? Yes, it was. I said the same thing this morning. We had a similar question, didn't we? Yes, it's always both. See, hard work and personal integrity are never enough on their own, yet the Lord will not prosper those without it. A a lazy slob or or a, a proud egotist shouldn't expect the favor and blessing of God, right? We see here hard work, personal responsibility. We also see God at work. What we see here is this synergy of personal or human responsibility and divine sovereignty at work. That God is divinely sovereign in all things, yet you have a responsibility like Joseph to live a life of integrity and to do what is right. And God brings those two together. God brings, brings those things to work together in harmony. Divine sovereignty, whereby God is in control of all things, and human responsibility, whereby a man is personally responsible for his actions. Both of those are important. Both of those are the reason for Joseph's success. So he rises here, verses 21 to 23, he rises to the position of chief prisoner. Now you could kind of look at that as a queen of the pigs position, right? In other words, hey, Joseph, congratulations, you've been titled the best of the worst. Literally, you can look at it that way. But for Joseph, it's the place he is, so he blooms where he's planted, right? This is where God has put me. I'm going to make the most of it and do what I can. There's a, there's a lesson there for us as well. We see that Joseph blooms where he planted and that he is right where God wants him to be in chapter 40 because chapter 40 is this very unique series of events that God orchestrates to accomplish Joseph's just unbelievable rise to power. Look at verses one through three. It came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. So the chief butler and the baker, they're in prison. Doesn't say what they did wrong just says that Joseph, or, uh, excuse me, Pharaoh was angry with them. Verse 4, the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them. He served them, so they were in custody for a while. Both officers are placed under the care of Joseph in the prison. 
and that, you know, keeper of the prison and Joseph himself. I mean, I don't know. Did they think much of this at this point? Maybe more like, hey, Joseph, two more. Okay, got them. Yet God was working, right? Those two more, maybe they didn't recognize that at the time, but those two more were very significant. Never underestimate what may seem usual and common. Two more prisoners, okay, bring them in. Never underestimate what may seem usual or common or normal. Verse 5. The butler and the baker and the king of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison had a dream. Both of them, each man's dream in one night and each man's dream with its own interpretation. Joseph comes to them, verse 6, in the morning and looks at them and saw that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with, who were with him in the custody of his Lord's house saying, why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, we each have had a dream and there is no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me. Joseph notices something's different with these two guys on this day. They're sad. Warren Wearsby makes an interesting comment here. He says that we see Joseph's character in this and that he takes notice of people. There's a lesson there for us, isn't it? When we see that someone is sad, we see that somebody is down, whatever it might be, Joseph takes notice and he asks them about it. And here you see Joseph in this queen of the pigs position as the best of the worst prisoner, yet still caring for other people. That's a lesson for us. They were both sad because they, didn't, they had dreams, but they did not have an interpretation. Dreams and their interpretations are extremely important in Egyptian culture. And you see here, dream after dream after dream in chapter 40 and 41. Joseph, notice what he says, end of verse 8. He says, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me. God, he, Joseph gives God credit for the dreams. And does Joseph not have some firsthand experience with that? And when these guys come to Joseph and they tell him his dreams, what do you think the first thing is that comes to Joseph's mind? Not necessarily here in the text, but it has to take Joseph back where? To his dreams, right? To those dreams that God had given to him. And, and in some way, Joseph, I don't know, he, it, maybe his faith is a whole lot stronger than any of ours would have been, but it certainly appears that at this point in life, the dreams that God had given to him, they were dead and they were, they were buried at that time. You know, Joseph's dreams had told him you would be lifted up, and so far he's only been what? He's only been torn down. Verse 9, the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream a vine was before me, and in the vine were three branches. It was as though it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, that means to bring his case up again, and restore you to your place. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. So the, the, the butler gives him his dream. Joseph gives the interpretation. Three days, you will be restored to your position. Notice what Joseph says in verse 14 and 15. He says, remember me when it is well with you. Please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. And also I have done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. Joseph pleads his innocence. And he, he, he asked the butler, 
put in a good word for me. Put in a good word for me. Maybe Joseph here sees a glimmer of hope. If in the dream God is saying that, that Pharaoh will reconsider the butler's case, maybe he would also consider Joseph's case. Maybe there's a glimmer of hope here for Joseph. Well, the baker overhears this, verse 16. He sees that the interpretation was good, and he said, hey, I want a piece of that good interpretation. Verse 16, he tells Joseph his dream. I was in my dream. There were three white baskets on my head. The uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. The baker wanted an interpretation. His, however, isn't nearly as good. In three days, it said the butler's head would be lifted up. The baker's head, it said, will be lifted off. Totally different. Verses 20 to 22, three days later, Joseph's interpretations come true. The butler is restored to his job. The baker is hanged. And you've got to think Joseph's thinking, here's my chance. It's not what you know, but it is who you know. And I now know somebody. I now help somebody get back into the presence of Pharaoh. And certainly he'll go there. I've got a man on the inside now. Things are looking up for me. He's going to tell Pharaoh about me. Verse 23. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Forgot him. You know, all the pieces and the people were in place here except for what? The timing. Whenever you can match up the right things with the right time, you know you have something, right? Sometimes you might have the right things, but the wrong time. You might have the right time, but you're not quite sure what those things are yet. And that's what he has here. The people are in the right place. Joseph is ready, but the time isn't right yet in God's perfect timing. Why? That's God's prerogative, not mine. Whenever you can match up the right things with the right time, you know God is doing something. Look at chapter 41. You see how Joseph maybe went from glimmers of hope to, to maybe despair. It came to pass at the end of two full years. So oh, two years, not that much. Two years in prison. Two more years being falsely accused. Two more, year, two more of Joseph's best years spent in prison. Two more years of squalor and worthlessness. Two more years of living under the weight of a false accusation, knowing that it didn't have to be this way. Two full years go by, testing Joseph once again. <clears throat> Chapter 41. Dreams again being important in here in Joseph's story. His problems all started with telling his brothers a dream, and now they begin to change. His story begins to change because the most powerful person in the world at that time has a dream. Pharaoh, verse 1, Pharaoh had a dream. 
Behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river the seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then, behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows in the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second time, and suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then, behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them, and the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed, it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men, and Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Two years after Joseph interprets the butler and the baker's dream, Pharaoh has a dream. Seven lean cows eat seven good cows. Seven withered grains of heads of grain devour seven plump and full heads of grain. Pharaoh, his magicians, his wise men, they have no idea what, what, what is going on here in this dream. And then verse 9, the butler remembers what he had forgotten. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh saying, I remember my faults this day. It's like a light bulb went on for this guy. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, we each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. There was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us to each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. The butler remembers Joseph. He tells Pharaoh about Joseph. Things are starting to look up, right? Verse 14, Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon and he shaved, changed his clothing and came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, look at verse 16, this is, this is key. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Notice Joseph's humility. It is not in me. Pharaoh says, hey, I've heard that you can do this. I've heard you've got the magic touch. I've heard that you are the one that I need to talk to. I've heard you are the, you are. And Joseph says, well, hold on a second. It's not in me. You know, if there's ever a time when you think Joseph would say, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I can do it. It's, it's me. I'm the one. I'm the one. Talk to me. And he doesn't, does he? What does he say? It's not in me. God will give you an answer of peace. Joseph does not take the credit for the interpretation of the dreams. He deflects that credit. He gives that praise to God. He says, I am not the one able to do it. God is the one that is able to do it. God is working through me to do it. There is a welcome lesson for all of us. When we want to lift ourselves up in pride and say, it is me, look at me, look what I have done, look at my success, look... Think of Joseph. At the moment, you think he would be saying, yeah, yeah, that's definitely me. I'm the one. He doesn't. 
Psalm 115.1, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. You know, how often in our lives are we guilty of glory stealing? Stepping in and accepting praise that only should belong to God. I think we're all guilty of that. Often, probably. Where we step in and we, that, that praise should be directed to God, but we kind of insert ourselves in the middle and take a little bit of that. We glory steal. What a lesson for us there from Joseph. Notice this also. Joseph, as you know, he'll go on to describe the dream, and we'll get there in just a second. But with the butler, with the baker, with Pharaoh's dream, Pharaoh didn't understand the dream. The magicians, the wise men, nobody could understand this dream. But who does God give the wisdom and the understanding to to understand the dream? God works through his people. God works through his people. He does not work through those in darkness. Joseph was the only God-fearer in Egypt at this point, most likely. The only God-fearer in Egypt, and yet that is who God works through. Don't discount the influence of small numbers. Don't discount the influence of one. Verses 17 to 24, Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream. I'm not going to reread it. It's the, same. it's the same from what we just read about the ears of corn and the lean cows and those things. Verses 25 to 32, Joseph correctly interprets Pharaoh's dream. He tells him the seven is, is seven years, seven good cows, seven good ears of grain are seven years of plenty. The seven lean cows, the seven withered ears of grain are seven years of famine says the famine will be so bad that the plenty will not even be remembered. He says in verse 32, the dream is repeated twice because it will surely come to pass. There's no question about this. And Joseph interprets the dream here. He did what was asked of him. Pharaoh asked him to interpret the dream. Joseph does what God has given him the ability to do. But notice something. Joseph goes a step further, verse 33. He hears the dream from Pharaoh. He interprets the dream correctly. And then maybe without even taking a breath, he goes into verse 33. He goes a step further. Joseph does what is not asked of him. He was asked to interpret the dream. And what does Joseph do? He tells Pharaoh what to do in his kingdom. There's a brazen step. Verse 33, now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine." Verses 33 to 36, Joseph boldly offers advice to Pharaoh. Can you imagine the gall of Joseph at this point? To offer advice to Pharaoh. Some would see this as Joseph overstepping his place, right? You've been called to interpret a dream. Do that, be nice, see what happens. But Joseph here is like what it says in Proverbs, that the righteous are as bold as a lion. 
The righteous are as bold as a lion. And not only here does he tell Pharaoh the, the interpretation of the dream, he dares to tell Pharaoh what he should do in light of the dream. Think, well, where would this type of brazenness land Joseph? Well, on the other side, think of Joseph. What does he have to lose? What does he have to lose at this point? What was he really risking in this? Don't miss here the boldness of Joseph, but also the wisdom of Joseph. You ever heard somebody say, don't just come to me with a problem, come to me with a solution, right? Don't just come and tell me a problem. Don't just go around pointing out everybody's problems. Come with a solution as well. Joseph does that. And so here, Joseph is not just the bearer of bad news, because is he? Yes. I mean, Pharaoh could have looked at him very poorly, and said, look, hell, you're the one that's going to tell me that we're going to go through all these problems. He's the bearer of bad news, but he also comes as a bearer of the way to overcome the bad news. You're going to go through seven years of good. You're going to go through seven years of, pl- of plenty and then seven years of famine. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be so bad that you're not even going to remember the first seven years of plenty. However, I've thought of a plan. There's good news. There's a way to overcome this. There's a way to come out the other side. And I, I, we're going we're gonna to stop here at verse 36. We'll, we'll get to Joseph's rise to power later, but I want to end with this. And, and, and I, I don't want to try to allegorize this too much, but is what Joseph does here not what we are supposed to do as well? You know, this morning we talked about exposing the works of darkness. Exposing the works of darkness. The evil that is in our world, the evil that is in, that is in our lives. And we as believers come and we expose those works of darkness and say, look at that darkness. Look at that bad news. But what are we also supposed to do? Just, Just at that point, walk away and say, hey, good luck with that. No, we're also called to step in with the good news to do what Joseph was. Joseph was the bearer of bad news. He, he pointed out the bad news uh, of the famine. We do that as well. We, we, we tell the world, hey, it's wicked. It's evil. What's happening? And certainly the message of the Bible does contain some bad news, doesn't it? It contains some bad news for all of us. The fact that we are sinners, that we are depraved, that we are dead apart from Christ. But we don't just point, them out, point out the bad news. We don't just come along as the bearers of of doomsday reports. We come also with the truth of the good news because the message of the gospel is also good news of life and hope in Christ, the life and hope that overcomes the, the message of sin and death. So the Christian, we are like Joseph here. Be bold as a lion to not only be the bearer of bad news that the wages of sin is death, but also be the bearer of good news that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think that's a lesson to learn from the life of, of Joseph here. We do expose the wickedness of darkness, but we also point people to the glorious light of Jesus Christ. Let's close with that. Let's pray. Lord, 